Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast with me, Jacob Granger, and this week the focus is all on podcasts. I have two brilliant guests this week who know a thing or two about podcasts and they'll be sharing their learning curves with us from easy mistakes and ways they have overcome them to their golden rules for their differing styles of podcasting. First up to bat is Georgia Cohn, podcast producer for BBC News, but don't go anywhere as we will also hear from Benjamin Frisch, podcast producer at Slate. Before we dive in, just to bring you up to speed with our News Rewired conference on the 27th of November at Reuters in London, we have just announced the initial agenda for the day with panels on going beyond diversity as a PR exercise, growing your audience beyond subscriptions, and driving change in the newsroom. More to come of course, but it's shaping up nicely, and if you're quick, you can take advantage of our early bird offer, saving you £50 if you book before the 5th of May, and you'll also be in with a chance of winning a Sennheiser memory mic. I guess because of the fact that I work on a daily news podcast... It's a very quick turnaround, so you know you have to get that podcast ready for a certain time. You have to make sure that you've got your top line and you've got the story. And you also have to make sure that you've got the right contributors for it as well. So if you're doing something on the day and you need that quick turnaround, it can be obviously quite full on and you you need to know exactly what elements are going to be part of that podcast episode. So that was Georgia Cohn, who, as you heard, is always up against quick-fire deadlines on a daily BBC News podcast. In that context, she identifies that one of her frequent challenges are getting the right voices when you have one eye on the clock. And in the spirit of improvement, I asked both of my guests for their advice in putting this piece together, which I'll try to take on board. For Georgia, having a simple yet consistent narrative is important, so I'll try not to meander. She tells me more about her daily struggles and how she has learned to deal with it. The biggest issues that we have technically is kind of making sure that we're creating a product that is very high quality, but at the same time, we're going to be able to turn that around anywhere from a few hours to up until when we publish, so five o'clock. I make sure that I have a list of contributors that I know have worked well previously when I've done other stuff within the industry. Um, You know, I make sure that I'm constantly checking out social media to see who's talking about what issues and whether we might be able to use them in the future. So it's good to have a knowledge of who you might talk to on a certain topic so that you can have that quick turnaround in a day. The first thing I do in the morning is I check Twitter. I you know, I find out what's trending, I find out what people are talking about on social media. And I also like to make sure that I'm checking kind of who's influential in terms of, um, you know, if someone's talking about a certain topic on Twitter or on Facebook, um, who is this person, kind of how influential are they? And I'm trying to make sure now that I'm kind of in the loop, not just in terms of the news, but also in terms of what young audiences are talking about and who they look to for um, I guess their version of news and and the topics that they're interested in. So contributors are key for Georgia. I ask her what trips up podcasters to find the right guests and any tricks of the trade that she's picked up to do this as the deadline approaches. One of the mistakes that I have not just made since creating podcasts but made since being a journalist is rushing to kind of find a contributor when actually 
I think sometimes it's better to really build a relationship with someone and really get the right person for an episode or a story than to just say, oh, okay, you know, I'm looking for this type of person and, you know, maybe you'll find five or six people that meet that criteria, but they might not be the best person to tell that story. You know, if I could give a bit of advice to myself previously, it's really to to find and understand who the right people for that story are. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something that is on the day, it's a little bit more difficult because you're basically looking for something for that day and that can then maybe add a bit more pressure to it. But I think that it's really important to not only network, but to really build up your contacts and the people that you speak to. And those people can become so valuable as well. I'm part of lots of Facebook groups. And I think that that's also a great way to be able to find lots of contributors who can really give you an understanding of a story and potentially also be a voice for a podcast episode as well. Having a good contact book to fall back on is undoubtedly important. But of course, the other thing weighing on the minds of podcasters and journalists alike is variety and including fresh voices. Georgia says this is important, but you do need to have a process in place to know they fit the bill. I think it's really important to... Um, well, first of all, follow those people on social media to really find out uh, what they're about, what topics they're talking about and um, what kind of voice they can offer to a podcast. But also, I like to have a chat with them beforehand. Um, So I often have pre-interviews with contributors that I think might be good for an episode. And I really like to get an understanding of maybe how we can work together so that if they do come on a podcast episode, they're going to be the right voice for it. They're going to be able to be comfortable, really, and be able to share their story and really add to a piece. Because I think it's so important to have different voices and people from different places because the podcasts that I enjoy listening to are the ones where you have different people who can share their experience and then you know there's someone who might have a completely different story um, but it's that kind of personal angle I think. Lifting the lid on the pre-interviews Georgia shows me the ins and outs of speaking to someone beforehand and why it is worth spending that time to get to know your interview subject first. The pre-interviews are so important because of the fact that you can really have an understanding of what someone is going to be like and what kind of things that they're going to say. Obviously, you want to try and be authentic as possible and not over-script things, but it's great to have an understanding of exactly what a contributor is going to say and what kind of topics they want to cover, what kind of story they want to tell as well, and what their experience is with a certain news story or certain experience. Sometimes, you know, you might be working on a feature piece and you might have a bit more time to find the right person. In the case that it's maybe like a two-way or or someone who is a bit more expert on a topic, then sometimes you you have an understanding of what they're going to be like anyway. But I think if you're trying to find a contributor, then you really kind of just need that time. Notes are so important and, you know, understanding exactly what they're going to say is, I think, probably the most important thing about finding the right people. 
but I imagine that one of the downsides must be losing out on those raw quotes that we journalists crave and that you only really get from those initial conversations. Are there ways to retrace those steps? It's usually when you're talking to people about something they're quite emotionally involved in as well and they just describe it in a way that's very strong and very descriptive and I guess because they're they know they're not being recorded as well sometimes people feel a lot more comfortable talking about that stuff if I think they've covered a really important subject matter or a topic I like to say you know I think we could go over this when we record it or maybe we can touch on this topic also if you've covered a certain topic that you'd like to actually talk about in the real interview or in a recording, then a lot of the time people are happy to kind of go over that again and to talk about that particular topic. And obviously sometimes you'll be talking to someone and they'll say something and you'll be like, oh, you know, I wish I had recorded that because it was a great little nugget of information or it was really powerful you know if you recreate those questions but in a way that's a little bit more kind of familiar and chatty a lot of the time you're able to get the same information and um, and to get that story across and as a parting note what are georgia's top tips for a daily news podcast one of my top tips i think for when you're producing and creating podcasts is the tone and really getting the tone right and and creating something that is very informal, chatty. Really, when you're creating podcasts, um, I, I remember someone said before, it was like a list of um, kind of podcast tips. And one of the rules is that a podcast isn't radio and a radio isn't podcasts. So I think with a podcast, you're able to really have that conversation that is quite informal and relaxed it's almost a bit like a deep dive I think and that's so important is to be able to get that tone right when you're creating a podcast and that deep dive element leads us nicely into Benjamin Frisch who has worked on Decoder Ring and Culture Gabfest for Slate which are long-form deep thoughts into cultural and historical topics and possibly predictably his advice for me is not to over-edit sound bites and protect the natural speaking rhythm of the interviewee. So I'll try to do that. Now the interesting thing about Ben is that his background is actually in fine art and college radio. So his general rule of thumb is not to have a rigorous approach to podcasts. Instead, have a fluid model where you can make tweaks without a formula. We'll touch more on that later on, but we'll start with some golden rules on approaching podcasts. And he starts with the classic rookie error that we've all made. I would say make sure you turn on the recorder that's not a joke that is true life experience some recorders like have a thing where it's like you actually have to press the record button twice and i definitely lost an interview because i thought i was recording and i didn't do it so make sure you turn on your recorder and a lot of people actually have stories like that but i think that when it comes to i guess stuff that happens more commonly i just always think you want to like be on the same page as your subject whether you are meeting them in person and doing a tape sync situation or if you're connecting with them via skype like make sure that you know where they are and how they're going to record themselves how they're going to sound um you know we've if you don't do that something that's happened is you might have a subject you know skype in from a coffee shop um and that is not really ideal, I think, for um, 
for recording a podcast. And that is something I have unfortunately learned the hard way as well. But on his first point, it reminds me of a rule that I picked up at college and has stuck with me ever since, which is that data doesn't exist unless it's in three places. I'm super paranoid about losing interviews, and I just wonder if Ben felt the same way. I love backups, and I love backups of backups. I keep archives of all of my finished sessions. Like I can't keep them all on my hard drive because they're too much, but I keep them in backed up. And when we're recording in our studios here, we have um, both when we record you know, our sessions normally, we record into Pro Tools, and we have all the tracks separated, but we also have a backup recorder running that just automatically um, collects uh, all of the audio that's running through the board. And um, that has definitely saved me. One time, I just, I don't know why, I just like didn't arm the correct track in Pro Tools to record one of the hosts, but it was on on the board. So he was like, you could hear him, all the other hosts could hear him. It was just like we were recording him, except the, he was just not being recorded. And so we recorded about half the show. I then sort of had a mild panic attack before realizing it's like, oh, we have the backup. I can cut everything he said from the backup and then just, um, you know, insert it back into the show. And it worked out totally fine. But, I mean, you hear in podcasts all the time, it's like, well, we were supposed to have an episode this week, but then we lost the recording or the file got corrupted. And so if you can, it's always best to have multiple means of recording the same thing. When we do live shows, we always try and record every track or every microphone individually if we can. We have a, you know, a couple of fancy recorders with like eight inputs so we can record every individual microphone. But then I also always try and get a mix from the board so that it's like just a backup if that something fails. And then my last ditch thing, it's like in case everything implodes, I have a Zoom H5 recorder and then just like point the onboard mics at the stage and just like this is just if everything explodes, uh, we will have something to put on air. Good contingency plans for everyday fears, but what about everyday struggles? What are the things that often trip Ben up on a daily basis or are always at the forefront of his mind when approaching new projects? It's always about story structure for us. Like on Decodering, because every episode of Decodering is about a totally different subject with totally different needs, we are always trying something different because there is no one approach that is always going to work for our show. The first episode that we did this year was about a con man, or um, uh, as he says, a, a social engineer who reformed himself and is now a a legal member of society. But that episode was, it was so difficult because we were constantly having to check ourselves where we're like, are we just being conned all the time? Like, is this guy, can we trust this guy? By the end of it, we were like, yeah, I think that we can basically give this guy the benefit of the doubt. But like the audience hadn't done all this fact checking. So we had to approach the episode in a way that would both be fair to his story, but also fair to the audience, who's going to be more skeptical than maybe we were. We did an episode like about the history of Baby Shark, the very popular song. But the thing about Baby Shark is that it is, you know, the stakes are so much lower. You're not dealing with somebody's life, you know, and, and being true to somebody's life and 
the terrible things that, that they have done. So those episodes, and the one we're working on right now, which comes out on Monday, is about the history of video dating. Like, uh, in the 80s and 70s, people used to, like, watch VHS cassettes in order to date one another. And so this is another one that feels a little bit lower pressure. And so we can have a little bit more fun with it and be a little bit more experimental in our structure. Ben makes an interesting point about how his background in art has made him continually strive for new improvements in his work. I wonder what other learning curves he has experienced during his time in podcasting and how his background has lent itself to this experience. You know, there's always technical stuff to learn, but like the technical stuff isn't that hard. It's like you, you need to learn how to edit audio and software compared to the learning curve of having to learn about narrative structure, about how to approach voice, about how to write. I've spent a lot of time doing critique. You know, you put up art on the wall, pages of things that you've done up on the wall, and you basically just go through with the group and you talk about them and you say what is what you like and what you don't like. And I, I think the single most valuable thing from my art school education was just like learning about how to tell people that they are wrong in a nice way or to tell them that something doesn't work in a nice way. Because one, it's helping other people. But when you critique other people, ideally what's also happening is that you're internalizing those ideas. And so you you get better at seeing those faults in your own work. Ben works with Willa Paskin for Dakota Ring, who is the host. I wonder what this critiquing looks like in action between the two. She's kind of leads on the writing, and then I follow behind her and edit her. And so I'm, I'm always just thinking about, like, this works, but is this the best way to make it work? And some of it is just kind of, when you work in an art form enough you just internalize it and you just feel it and you're like mm, this is maybe not the best way and sometimes you're wrong and somebody else calls you out and will oftentimes it's like no you are wrong about this we should do it this way and because podcasts especially narrative podcasts should be very iterative we generally will try out different things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't like being able to collaborate is so important and also like in cartooning you're thinking about narrative structure all the time like there's kind of a funny way that there's some relationship between the way that you arrange panels on a comic book page and the way that you arrange tape and narration in a documentary podcast because it's always about just kind of like how can I take these pieces and move them around in order to maximize their power basically being flexible is no doubt an interesting and useful approach, but are there any working formulas, best practices, fixed approaches worth mentioning? There's definitely no formula. It is just a case-by-case -case basis. There are strategies. You know, famously, I don't know if Ira Glass came up with this, but it's famously an Ira Glass kind of takeaway is the, the anecdote reflection model where you have a subject or you yourself sort of tell an anecdote, tell a story, and then you reflect on it. Then you make meaning out of the anecdote. And so you do anecdote reflection, anecdote reflection, anecdote reflection. That's a very common structure that you hear in narrative radio. I, as an, like an artist and person who makes stories, I do not like, like hard formulas because I think that there's some artists, I think, 
get to a certain point and they they stop relying on instinct and start relying on formula. And I think as soon as you start relying on formula and you stop relying on this kind of base level feeling, that the art can get a little bit rote. And so I always want to be second guessing myself and on my toes a little bit. I think that there are like tools. I made a podcast out of the book Out on the Wire, which is about podcasting with the author Jessica Abel. And in that book, there are a lot of really great strategies, like the um, the focus sentence, and then we expanded on that idea about like how do you construct a story, and like the focus sentence is like this base level thing that you start with, and then you can build out from. I think that those are really great strategies. I just don't like to be too prescriptive about it. So how do you know when you have it right? Is there ever that eureka moment in Ben's mind? It's rare that everything kind of snaps into place. Exactly. As we're iterating, things get better. But it's really progressive. It is not a just like suddenly everything works. We try and do three or four iterations on when we actually have the podcast and can listen to it. Because when you make one big change, it almost never makes everything else work. What it, the big change makes work is the big structure of a story. And then, once that's in place, then you start noticing all the smaller stuff. We always, at the end of every single episode of Decoder Ring, we always feel like mm, there was like one thing we could have changed, you know? And we try not to get anxious about it. Like, that's just part of how it is to make things. It's like, you're always going to be like a little bit unsatisfied, maybe. And that's actually pretty healthy, I think. I think in the the episode that we did about reality TV called The Basement Affair, there was like just one idea about how reality TV was sort of a metaphor for misinformation. And it wasn't until we heard the whole thing, like we had heard all our arguments in totality presented back to us in an elegant way, that it allowed us to make this next jump it made us realize that, oh, there's actually a way to take this argument a little bit further. You know, I feel like I've made a lot of progress as a technical producer, but generally by the end of finishing something, I feel pretty okay about how it sounds. For this last point, the irony isn't lost on me here. I want you to think back to Ben's earlier point about backing up data and losing interviews, and what I said about having data in three places. We were not trying to prove a point in this interview, but we ended up doing it. For some reason, the interview did not record in its entirety. Fortunately, however, I had a backup recording running, meaning I did not lose this last great point from Ben on the things he has gotten wrong along the way and how he has corrected them. Every story like, needs some kind of human connection. And that really has to be the thing that draws the person through the story. So even when you're doing a story, we did an episode about hotel art and like how art is gets into hotels and in the process of it we just found that that was an incredibly dry subject that actually didn't have a lot of human elements and so what we kind of ended up doing is like making willa like willa's struggle to comprehend this idea of like art as this commercial product in hotels like her kind of emotional thing became much more present in the episode I think we don't do a lot of stories because 
we can't find this kind of human entry point. When I first got back into making radio stuff, I had gone to graduate school and I had drawn a graphic novel and I had done this artist residency. And so I hadn't actually made much radio in like five years. And when getting back into it, I think that I was thinking a lot about kind of uh, whiz-bang sound design a lot. And now I just like think like, why did I care about that? I was editing a script the other day and there were all of these like somebody's they're talking to somebody on Skype. So you include the Skype ringtone, you know, and I just feel like all of those embellishments, they just feel very unnecessary. Like just get to the core of the humanity and cut out all of the nonsense. God knows I love sound design and I love really effective use of music, but sound design is not an end in itself. And I think early on I was thinking that sound design was kind of an end in it to in itself. And now I look back on some of that stuff and I'm like, eh, that was kind of annoying. Two interesting and different accounts from Georgia and Benjamin, and I'd like to thank them both for speaking to me and their advice for putting this together. Thank you, of course, to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. Before I leave you, here's Jasmine from our courses board who has some training opportunities she'd like to share with you. Want to start making your own videos for social media? Join our one day creating social video workshop to find out how to shoot and edit films specifically for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. It takes place on the 24th of June in central London. You can find out more at journalism.co.uk slash s43. That's all we have time for this week, but don't forget you can get in contact with us on Twitter at Journalism News if you would like to feature as a guest on our next podcast, or if you have any other tips you would like to send our way. Until next time. Thank you.